I'm a grateful, enthusiastic, and very, very active member of the Al-Anon family groups, and my name is Jack. Hi, Jack. Can you all hear me in the back? Nod your head. Am I louder than the voices in your head? <laughs> if they get louder, just wave your hands. I love the sound of the mic when it moves. They've been doing it all weekend. Everybody's adjusted it. Listen very carefully. The one who's had to adjust it the most was Kenna because she's a different altitude than the rest of us. And if you're at the workshop this morning, if you get the tape, I want you to pay attention to this. Every time she speaks, it sounds like she just opened her casket to come to the microphone. It's like Boris Karloff's doorbell, isn't it? This little parade thing that you guys do with the speakers is great. I've not encountered that before. It's, you know, you only get to speak once, but you got to walk the green mile six times. <laughs> Pretty cool stuff. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for your hospitality. I've never been in this particular area before. I'm honored to be included among this roster of speakers and to hang out with the people who are doing service at this conference, which I think is you know, that's, that's, where the, that's where it's at for me in, in Al-Anon and in recovery is suiting up, showing up, and being of service. And uh, the people that, that impress me the most are the folks who are operating behind the scenes, who are chopping wood and carrying water, and they don't get to come to a microphone and get the pat on the back afterwards. And they suit up, and they show up, and they do their job anyway because it's what we do. That's how I get out of my, the obsession of myself, which is substantial. Um, I'm really glad to be here. The, uh, the lake was often the scene of the crime for me. I, I don't tell a lot of the lake stories, but I feel compelled to share some of those with you, so maybe we'll get to some of that. And, and uh, you know, I've been around here for a little while. It's been, been my privilege to travel around the country a little bit and, and do this. It's uh, something I struggle with. I've been talking to some guys this weekend, some people, some great AA members who would spend virtually every weekend at podiums around the country. I had to ask for some of their time to sit down with them and help me get my head right to wrap around the idea that when I do this, it's not about me. Uh, one of the basic things I learned in Al-Anon is that it was, it was supposed to be <laughs> none of my business what you thought of me. That's a very difficult principle to apply. And when you get a little bit farther on, it becomes part of it that it's none of my business what she thinks of me. That's a little harder. And then there's the infamous they. We don't know who they is, but what they are thinking about me without my permission. And because the, the basic nature of my disease is, that I'm, the, is my ego, it manifests itself in being selfish and self-centered. I think it's all about me. I want the T-shirt concession for yes, it is all about me. And I would just I'd sell them in the lobby, and I'd make a lot of money at AA conferences. Uh, it's, it's been really a treat to hear the speakers. That most a lot of whom I've not met. I've never heard Tim speak actually, but we've spent a lot of time together and. And uh, we've seen each other in, in recovering circles around, actually around the world, and it's, it's great. Uh, I come from a home that was deeply affected by the disease of alcoholism, and it wasn't the standard way that that happens. Uh, in my home, my parents, to the best of my knowledge, were not alcoholic, and they didn't drink alcoholically for the most part. I did see them drink on a few occasions. They didn't seem to do it very well. Uh, mom, on her birthday, they would get champagne for mom, and that was uh, one of the few times I saw her drink. And she would quickly get drunk and pass out, and they would put her to bed. They'd pick the lock on the bathroom because that's where she would pass out. And they'd put her to bed, and then the party would go on without her. They would detach immediately. And, uh, and things, things progressed that way. And there were isolated incidents, and I believe that it was more a function of the alcoholism passing through my family than existing in my immediate family. Um, things like, you know, when you got drug out of bed in the middle of the night, it was, it was an anticipation of a death sentence. 
Uh, there was a lot of violence, and there was a lot of secrets, and there was a lot of pressure in that home for a little kid. And I do remember one night Dad dragging me out of bed and my brothers, and we knew we'd got caught doing something because we were always up to something. We were boys. We were up to something. It was pretty much if we got a beating and, we, and they found out we didn't deserve it, they said, well, it was probably for something we didn't catch you at, which uh, talking about rationalization. We got jerked out of bed and thrown into a room where my parents had gone to a party, and Mom had got a little bit drunk, and Dad got a little bit drunk, and Mom had a black eye. And my dad had dragged us out of bed and marched us in the room and said, I want you to look at your mother. She's drunk. But it didn't escape my attention that she had been beaten up too. But having said that, I still don't believe that my parents were alcoholic until I've outlived both of my parents. I've buried them both with the help of the fellowship of Al-Anon and AA supported me through that. It was difficult times, but I'm here to tell you that those are the things that now qualify as experience, strength, and hope for me in working with others. Uh, before I get too far along, uh, before Terry spoke this morning, we were in the little room, and there was a rumor circulating that she had gone for a boat ride, and they were worried that she wouldn't make it back on time. And, you know, I'm an Al-Anon. I'm a linear thinker. I see the problem and the solution. That's part of my disease. And I said, you got this wonderful convention with all these AAs and all these Al-Anons, and you assign an AA to watch the other AAs. What's the sense in that? <laughs> you put one Al-Anon, even on a couple of them. We got it handled. <laughs> Because if you're out on the lake and the engine dies, the al will be swimming ashore with an alcoholic under each arm and a rope towing the boat. <laughs> I, went, I went to uh, a meeting of the Pacific Group one night, and I, I don't know if Clancy's here, but there was some discussion of the fact it's the biggest regular AA meeting anywhere in the world, and the, the alcoholics were sneaking donuts down into the carpeted area of the meeting place there, and there was a lot. There was a big hoopla going on about that, and I... I pulled the secretary aside, and he, he happened to be somebody I knew. And I said, you know, there's a lot of Al-Anons here. And he said, yeah. I said, you're missing a golden opportunity. He said, what's that? I said, put them in charge of the aisles. They won't let you guys get away with that crap. <laughs> I think if you have a valuable resource, you should use it. <laughs> now, meanwhile, back at the ranch, that house was pretty crazy. There was a lot of secrets and secret alliances and infidelity and, and uh just a lot of stuff going on, and we were privy to the information, which I think was a characteristic of the, of the, of the alcoholism coming through. Without uh, Alcoholism, I heard one time, and I thought it was wonderful, can exist in, in the absence of the presence of the chemical alcohol. The, the chemical alcohol does not to be present for alcoholism to exist. Certainly, uh, my wife identifies as an alcoholic. She's over 21 years sober. She's still an alcoholic and hasn't touched a drop in over almost 22 years. Alcoholism can exist in the absence of that chemical, and it certainly did there. And it was things like, you know, we were, we were trusted with information that if we gave it up at the wrong time to the wrong person, I really thought it could cost our life. Uh, we would kiss mom goodbye and load the motorcycles in the truck to go racing motorcycles, and we'd pick dad's girlfriend up up the street and go away for the weekend. I'm eight years old. My brothers are five and four, and we're sworn to secrecy at penalty of our life if we give up the wrong information even in our sleep. And it was a lot of pressure, and it didn't get any better. And uh, I, uh, I need to tell you that I am a failed alcoholic. <laughs> I have it on good authority that I did not properly apply myself. I believe it was Dick that told me that after he heard my story. He said, you missed it by at least one beer, maybe a six-pack. If I'd have worked harder at it, I could have made it. The problem is... I would have given anything to have a blackout. I'm sorry, that looked good to me. But when I got drunk, I got stupid and made an ass of myself and did things I was ashamed of and then remembered all of it. And, uh, and I'm not talking about I had a few and it just didn't work. I got knee-walking, tongue-chewing drunk a couple of times, and I remembered every moment of it. 
So and and that created a crisis for me in my life. You see, because everybody around me who I admired, who had what I wanted, which was an exciting life and a lot of stuff going on, were all heavy drinkers. They were all alcoholics, and when they drank. My brothers and my uncles got taller and better looking, and they won the fight. Or if they didn't, they didn't care, and they got the girl. And we had to tell them about it tomorrow because they didn't remember, so they got to relive it again. <laughs> and uh, and it didn't work for me. And I had a I had a crisis of identity. I had to find something else that worked. And what I did was I just became the go-to guy to take care of all of them. Does that sound familiar? I mentioned to my wife one time. Uh, I said to her, uh, "I bring you greetings from my beautiful wife Leslie. I wish she could be here with me." Uh, she's home taking care of the duty so that I can be here, and she's actually very ill. I'll get to that in a minute. But uh, I said to her, you know why I never really liked drinking is because when I drank, I lost control. And she looked at me for a second, and she says, what you don't understand about alcoholism is that when I drank, it gave me control. It was the best description of the difference between the two spiritual illnesses of alcoholism and those of us who love and are affected by them that I think I've ever heard. And uh, I believe that to be true today. I got out of that house fairly young. I escaped. Uh, problem was I took me with me. Uh, an example of where I wound up was I was 16 years old. I couldn't take the pressure of answering the phone because Dad's girlfriends would call the house. And not only was it the girlfriend calling the house, you were never really sure which one it was. You might call the girlfriend by the wrong name and get the same consequence you'd get if you gave up the information to Mom. Right? I see some heads nodding out there. This is not new material. And when I moved out at 16 years old, I was working two jobs. I moved in with my 16-year-old girlfriend and her mom, who was an alcoholic and couldn't work, and I supported the household. I took me and the problem and, and the symptoms of my disease, I took them with me. And uh, I went out in the world and I created a lot of wreckage. Now, in my role as savior of the family and the center, centerpiece of anybody's inventory that needs looking at, because that was the other role I fulfilled, uh, I was the guy who got the calls in the middle of the night. I got a lot of calls in the middle of the night. I, they, they petered out after a while because I stopped responding to them. But I will give you an example of what those calls looked like. I got a call one night. It's a story I almost always tell when I speak. It was 2.30 in the morning. That's when the phone rings at Superman's house. And uh, I would love to tell you that I leaped out of bed and ran to a phone booth to change into my tights, but most of you don't know what a phone booth is. <laughs> Isn't that right, Barbara? We were talking about that this morning. I get the call from my stepmom. My dad and mom are separated, and he's married another one, dating a third one over here. Dad was a very charming man. And uh, stepmom calls me up and says, Your brother, my baby brother, has been in a fight at the bar. And he's come home and got the shotgun. He's gone back to the bar, and you need to go get him. Now, I don't even question that. It's that whole blood is thicker than water ethic that, you know, he may be an axe murderer, but he's my brother mentality. That, that That's what we did with the Father Flanagan story was we turned it from something really wonderful and spiritual to something that was directly related to alcoholism and all the stuff that goes with it. And, of course, when I get that call, that's my job. It's my value in life. I, in here, if I look in here, I can't even look in here. But if I can fix it for you, I'm okay. I get out, get in my car, and I go to the bar. I'm telling you, five minutes I found him. It was the first place I checked. He had a, a couple of places that he did his drinking. And I, it was a pizza place that served beer and a little shopping mall. And I pulled up there. The bar is closed at 2 o'clock in the morning. It's now almost 3. So everybody's gone except for brother. And he's parked in the middle of the lot with his van. The windows are all broken out of it. They're right. He parked right in the same spot when he came back where they'd knocked the windows out of his van and a tussle with about seven or eight young men. And, and he's got the shotgun laying against the wind wing. And I pulled up and got out of the car. And I said, so what you doing? <laughs> he says, I'm waiting for him to come back. 
Oh, that cool. This is going to be one of the lesser painful evenings in the hero business. I said, I'll have the shotgun. Turned that over. He gave me the shotgun. I broke it down and took the shells out. And I dropped it in my trunk, a decision I was to regret just moments later, actually. And <laughs> I thought, we're all done here. My work is through. And I got in my car to go home. We had CB radios in our car. And as I was getting in my car, he says to me something which is a, which is a uh, long-lasting family value at my house. He said, I'm going to find them. Now, when we ever got in a fight and got our ass thoroughly kicked, the very next thing that, th that occurs to us is we get in the car and go find them and get some more. That's what we do. I don't know what your family values were, but that was ours. And I said, well, you go with God. Those were my exact words. And I got in my car to leave, and I got about 100 yards out and was just going down the apron into the, into the street when my radio, my CB radio pipes up, and he said, I found them. They're around the back. All right, I turned my little Mustang around, and I went back to the place. And he, I remember he had gone off to the left to go around the building, and it was a big circular mall. And So I figured I'd go around the, white, the right side and see what was going on. And I came around the back, and sure enough, when I came around the edge of this building, I could see this light stand in the middle of the parking lot. And there's three cars right underneath the light stand, and it's now a little after 3 in the morning. And there's about seven or eight young men standing around the cars having a couple of beers little 3 o'clock in the morning after the bars closed beer, minding their own business. I can see Brother's Headlights across the parking lot over there. And over my radio comes the next thing, which is, I'm going in. <laughs> Anybody new to Al-Anon here tonight? I will translate that for you. That means we're going in. <laughs> now, I'd been in plenty of scrapes like this before, and it has occurred to me since then that every time we wandered into one of those things, he was pretty drunk and pre-anesthetized, so he wasn't going to feel what happened to him, but I was stone-cold sober and going to feel and remember all of it. And I'm thinking the odds don't look too good to me because him being drunk and me studying mathematics at the university, I have figured out that I'm going to have to figure out what to do with my seven guys. So I started across that parking lot at a pretty good clip in that Mustang, and I, I came up with a plan. When you come from a place like I came from, you need to have a plan right now, and your life might depend on it. And I believe that night it did, and the plan I came up with was I was going to go in there running pretty hard in that little car and grab the emergency brake and slide the back end around and slide in there sideways and see if I could pin three or four of those guys between the cars to give me a chance to get out of the car. Now, as far as family values goes, Daddy taught me that the most critical time in any gang fight is when you're getting into and out of the car, you are the most vulnerable, and I was trying to overcome that little hurdle before I jumped out to take on who was left. And I started across that parking lot, and I got up to about 70 miles an hour, pretty much topped out in second gear in that thing, and I grabbed the brake and brought the rear end around, and for the last second, the radio pipes up one more time, and it says, I don't think that's them. <laughs> Now, I'm a pretty good driver. I started racing cars when I was four years old. I won my first race in a quarter midget and motorcycles and boats and anything I get my hands on afterwards. But the best driving I've ever done in my life, I did that night <laughs> to not kill somebody. Because when I put that plan in motion, I knew full well and I know better looking back at it that if I'd have done, done that and I had, believe me, there was no doubt in my intention I was going to do it because I thought I'd die otherwise. There's somebody that fell, somebody that dropped in the middle of the cars, or somebody to bled to death or had taken their legs off, and I would have been in a place that you've already heard about today. And that's it. My life and this program are, are a progression of seconds and inches, and I just missed those guys. I went by them carrying a pretty good head of steam, 
and I went out the driveway on the other side without lifting off the floor on that throttle because I didn't think it would be advisable to discuss my bad behavior with them at that point. <laughs> I told that story at a meeting about a year and a half ago, a local meeting, one that I've been attending for over 20 years. And a young man walked up to me and he said, that story about the cars that night when you were going to run those guys down the parking lot, he said, I was there. And he looked a little young to be one of the guys, but the only ones there was me and brother. And I thought, oh, crap, here comes an amends I didn't see coming. Sorry for trying to run you down in the parking lot. You know, how do you phrase that at the end of a meeting? And he said, no, he says, that night your mom called my uncle before she called you. And I was with him, and we went to the parking lot, and we were sitting in another corner, and I watched you come across the parking lot. And I still to this day can't believe you didn't kill somebody. Now... I love to tell the story. I like to make you laugh. I, if you were at the workshop this morning, you know I don't mind creating a mental image that will gnaw at you for a while, <laughs> painted on the inside of your, of your eyelids. And I've been telling that story for a long time, and it's the way I remember it, but it might have got dressed up a little over the years. And he, he repeated that story back to me exactly the way I told it to you. And uh, here's the reason I tell you that story, because it's not what you think it is. On the night that I got that call, I wasn't a 16, 17-year-old kid making a bad decision, just another bad decision. I wasn't a person without responsibilities. When I got out of that bed at 2.30 in the morning, um, more than likely because the time frame is fuzzy, I need to qualify that because I don't remember. The blackouts I had were more of the emotional nature. I more than likely walked around a crib where my daughter lay in a full coma with tubes sticking out of every part of her body. She had a trach tube and a feeding tube in her stomach, and she was in a full arrest coma between the ages of one and two years old. She had been a victim of drowning uh, in the care of a babysitter in a foot and a half deep plastic pool in the backyard while I was at work. And uh, I walked past that crib and I walked past the closed door of my son who was then about four years old. And I left that house, a house that was completely dependent on me for financial support, for medical insurance, and for a lot more which I didn't show up for to go out and take an action because I believed I had no choice other than to take the action I just described to you I fully intended to take in that parking lot because my, the, my priorities when I came out of that house were completely upside down. I don't know what's right. I don't know what's wrong. Everything is my stuff and everything is about me and I don't know how to act any better. The other part of that story that is important for me is this, and that is that when that daughter drowned, she was in Children's Hospital for six weeks. And at the end of that six weeks, they came to the determination that she was never going to come out of a coma. Now, they don't tell you that when you're young parents. What they tell you is, we need to move her out of children's and make space for her. We're going to send her to a state hospital. And my then wife, my first wife, said, no, you're not. We're taking her home, and we'll take care of her. And we contacted some charities, and we acquired the medical equipment to do what I just told you. We had stuff to feed her through her stomach. We had suction devices and heart monitors and breathing monitors and all this stuff to take care of that child. Now, the greatest guilt and shame I've ever had in my life that I walked right through the doors of Al-Anon with was that when that daughter came home, I couldn't be there. I couldn't show up and be a husband. I couldn't be a man, and I couldn't be a father in the face of a family that <coughs> desperately needed me to be any of those, and I couldn't show up because I'd be in the presence of my daughter laying in that crib and those emotions, which are the end of my world if they come loose. I don't know where I got that idea, but I believed it with every fiber of my being. And when they got right here to just the bottom of my eyes, I had to go. And for the year that that child lay in a coma, her care was almost exclusively given by my former wife because I could not do it. I couldn't be in the house. And it's an interesting contradiction that I'm a guy that you want to have on your back. 
when you're at the bar and they start breaking the tops off the bottles. Because I'm a formidable force when I'm afraid. There was a workshop this morning on fear. There's nothing more dangerous than somebody who is truly afraid. And if I think I'm fighting for my life, I will do anything to preserve it. And fear was, uh, I just couldn't cope with it. I couldn't cope with it, so I left. That daughter died after a year. I won't bore you with the details of that. I will tell you this. There's a page in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that talks about the past of the families of the alcoholic. It's not talking about the alcoholic. It's talking about the past of the families of the alcoholic being their, sometimes their only asset, their most valuable asset, and sometimes their only one. And that we should be only too willing to bring those secrets out of their darkest hiding places, for with it we can avert misery and death for others. They were talking to us. Bill was talking to us when he wrote that. I have found in recovery and in sponsoring and in fellowshipping with other people, there have been times where my qualification as having been a parent who lost a child has been incredibly valuable in just talking to somebody else who's having or has recently had the same experience that there are only things that I perceive as negative, that I just don't, I don't understand why they are or how they are. I get to take the information and put it to use if I'm willing to do it in service. I uh, stayed gone from that house. I never returned to it after the daughter died. I stayed on the road. I worked in the movie business. I was gone off and on movie locations, and I chose to stay gone. It was the best I could do. I went out and did exactly what I saw my father do and what I judged him so harshly for. I did it with one difference, and that is I never told a soul what I was doing. Nobody, not a best friend, nobody ever. It was open knowledge with my dad's behavior to everybody but my mom and maybe with her. If you've been around Al not long enough, you understand what I'm talking about. Sometimes we have information that we just choose not to know. And I don't know where that went, but I know that everybody knew but, but, but mom. And when I did it, nobody knew what happened. I would go on locations. I'd be gone for months. I'd be dating. I met a woman who was to become uh, my beautiful wife, Leslie. I was on location. She was interested in any kind of a relationship that certainly could have absolutely no strings attached. Unavailable men were her specialty, and I was incredibly attractive to her because I was not only talking nice about my wife at home, I was dating her best friend while I was there on location. That was like catnip to the alcoholic. <laughs> and so she tried to seduce me on the dance floor of a little bar in town, and we were in Page, Arizona, and I said, I'm with somebody. She goes, I know, it's my best friend, and I, I, I thought that showed initiative. <laughs> so I tracked down her unlisted number and called her. She thought that showed initiative, and we started we started about a two-and-a-half-year suicide pact that uh, I'll tell you a little more bit about. And uh, it was all very exciting. I, I'm, I'm not real deep. I need to tell you that the very first thing that attracted me to her is that it seemed to me that the moment you poured in alcohol, her clothes fell straight off. <laughs> Now, we've been married this year. It'll be 20 years. We were together for the last year and a half of her drinking and, and, uh, and, and some of her sobriety before we got married. And I need to tell you that you still can't keep clothes on the girl. She just don't like clothes. It tells you I don't know, never did know what was going on. And what would happen at the lake is we'd get to the lake, and she'd get in the cooler and get a couple of, couple of things of wine out of there, and the clothes came right off at the lake. Now, that was fine until the rangers showed up, and we all had some splaining to do. But it, was, it was my kind of excitement. If your drug of choice is adrenaline, all you need is an alcoholic to provide that endless supply of it. I, uh, we, I was on location. We dated for a while. I moved location. She came down to see me in Lake Havasu, California, or Lake Havasu, Arizona, and 
And uh, then her dad got sick, so I was taking her to the airport to put her on a plane and fly her home to see her dad, and I went to a different gate and picked up my wife who was flying in to see me. There was a gas crunch. I thought, why waste an extra tank of gas? You know, it was all very exciting. That movie wrapped up when I went home, and, and my beautiful wife, Leslie, will tell you in her story, she started in Omaha, Nebraska, and was working her way west in six-month intervals. She would move someplace and get a job, and her alcoholism, she'd be a hero for about three months and a goat for the next three, and six months later, she was moving on. They'd either promote her or fire her, and when I met her in Page, Arizona, she had just lost her job because of her drinking in Page, and she'd gone there to work for Mormons. She was sure you wouldn't be able to drink with Mormons. It was her effort to control and enjoy or not, or not drink or whatever, and when she met her boss the first night, he offered her a cocktail, so much for that idea. So and when I moved out of there, she moved off to California and called me up. So I'm going to describe to you our first date in California, because uh, my wife then and my kids had gone up to visit my, my son and my sister had gone up to visit my, my family up in Central California. And Leslie called me up for a date, and I was supposed to go up and meet her in Lancaster, California. It's a desert community about an hour north of Los Angeles. And I got up there, and I couldn't find the place. She gave me directions on the phone. There were no cell phones. That'll date this story for you. And I kept stopping at a phone booth and calling her up and go, you can't go straight. There's nothing but desert out there. It's a T intersection. And she would say, no, this and that. And I, now I know that she was drunk, and she wasn't from around here, you know. And uh, so I'm doubling back again to go find her. And I said, well, I don't find you. You better come looking for me. And she did. And I came across the freeway. There's a great big freeway overpass, and I came down the other side, and there was an intersection there, and there had been an accident. I'd just gone through it a few minutes before, but now there was a bad accident. And there's a Honda Accord buried, and I mean buried, in the grill of a full-size Oldsmobile. And they took a head-on at a pretty good clip right in the middle of this intersection. And the police are already there. The fire department's already there. And there's a lot of activity because this blonde in this car is not breathing, and they're trying to get around. And I hear the officer as I get out of my car. He says, we don't know who she is. She's got Nebraska plates, and she's carrying no ID. And I said, I know who she is. And I think I might have given them a name. And they got her out of the car, and they got her heart started again. And they put her in an ambulance. And the closest hospital was just a little little hospital without a trauma center. They had an emergency ward. was as good as it got. And they took her over there, and I followed over in my car. I went in. I'm sitting next to her, and they got her on the table waiting for the doctor to see her, and she stops breathing again. So far, my date sucks. <laughs> I run out in the hall, and I try and get the nurse's attention. A nurse calls a code. They push a button. The light starts flashing. There's a globe blue, and they got crash carts, and in they come, and they get her heart started again. And I'll never, I'll never forget that night when they got her heart going again. She's laying flat on the table, and I was on her right side, and she rolled her head over, and she looked at me with those great, big, gorgeous, Lucy eyes of hers, and she said, Let me go. Can you imagine that? I could not wrap my mind around it. I thought she's delirious. She took a pretty bad hit in the steering wheel and the windshield. I figured it's just a head trauma thing or whatever. She said, let me go. When my wife, if you have the privilege of hearing my wife do her talk in AA, she talks about she died and was walking into the great white light. She was happy to go because jail was waiting back there. Trouble was back there again. And she says that she argued, God said, you got to go back. And she said, no. And she argued with him, and he sent her anyway. So when she opened her eyes and saw me, it wasn't good news. That was to become a continuing theme in our relationship. <laughs> and I understand today, through the benefit of having attended, I've, I've been to more than 1,000 AA meetings. I go to AA every week. I go to a conference like this and attend four or five on a weekend. More than 1,000 AA meetings to learn about a disease that I do not have from the people who do.
But what I, what I believe tonight is that when she did that, when she opened her eyes and looked at me and said, let me go, that just for a second, the door to the guilt and the shame and the pain associated with the active disease of alcoholism showed through just for an instant and the door shut. I got to see just this much of it. I still to this day can't imagine what it's like that it could be so bad that dying looks preferable to living, but that's what she thought. Now, they're asking a bunch of questions, and she's got no ID, and they ask her if she has insurance, and she says no. And they said, you have to go. They put a neck brace on her. She's got broken bones. She's died twice tonight. They loaded her in a wheelchair and wheeled her out to my car. And the nurse loaded her in, and she looked across at me. as She's strapping her in a seat. She says, I hope you live near a hospital, honey, because she's not doing very well. I said, thank you so much for sharing. So now we're trying to decide where to go because she had been staying with this phantom uncle whose existence we still debate to this day, 24 years later. We never did find him again. She doesn't know how to find it again, and I never did find it. And she suggests to me, why don't you just take me to a hotel? Now, I know today, and she said this as well, that her plan was for me to drop her at a hotel and wait for death to take her because she still was not interested in sticking around. She knew she was going to jail. and She knew they were going to find her. It was one more time for her, and there had been a lot of one more times. And I thought about it for all of about eight seconds. I was on to her plan immediately. I have had that gift, that clairvoyant gift. I knew what she was thinking. And I reached over, and I, I remember I reached over, and I put my hand on top of hers, and I said, it's okay, honey, i got a better idea. I'll just take you home. Did you all want to think about that for a minute, or did you forget i got a wife and a family at home? Yeah, yeah. A couple of guys just came in late. I need to let you know that this is not the AA meeting. A common mistake. I did this stone cold sober. <laughs> Spelled S-O-B-E-R, sober. And I called up that wife on the phone who was by then home, and I told her a lie. I'd gotten pretty good at that and said, I'm bringing a friend home, and she met us in the driveway. She grabbed Leslie's ankles, and I grabbed her armpits, and we carried her in. My wife has shared from podiums all over the country, all over the world now, that I dropped her coming through the door. <laughs> I don't remember that. But she says that it might be true. I, I might have, I was under a lot of emotional pressure that night. You know, bringing the girlfriend home to meet the wife and kids for the first time. <laughs> we, we had a little room in the front of the house. that is. I'm still in the same house, by the way. And we put her in a bed in that room, and we took shifts sitting with her because we didn't think she was going to make it for about three days. It was pretty tight. We didn't know what else to do with her, and she started to pull through. And what that did was it set up six months of some very interesting living. <laughs> where my girlfriend and my wife are starting to become friends. <laughs> and my wife is confiding in my girlfriend that she thinks there may be some problems in her marriage. <laughs> and my girlfriend is giving my wife little helpful pointers to, sec to, to spice sex up, spice up our, our marriage. And I'm trying to get my girlfriend to mind her own business. It's becoming very complicated. <laughs> but it's not unmanageable. I'm managing just fine. <laughs> One night, we're, she was on heavy medication. It's one of the few times that she didn't drink for any period of time. She was on some pretty serious drugs. And I start, we finally found out she did have insurance because I called her mom in Nebraska. And we started getting her bones set and her treatment and some medical treatment and stuff. She began to recover. And I made her a wheelchair. We didn't have one, so I bolted some wheels to a chair. And we'd wheel her around the house like a stick of furniture up to the table into the bathroom. She couldn't, she couldn't sit up on her own, so we'd all go to the, you know, I'd take her to the bathroom, pick her up, drop her drawer, set her on the toilet, pick her up, put her back in the chair, wheel her back in. We all showered together. I'd take her in there, and I'd hold her up. My wife would wash her. We'd flip around, wash the other side, put her back in the chair. It's not unmanageable yet. 
Some are sicker than others, aren't they, Kenna? <laughs> I get a lot of street cred around AA when I tell this story that every once in a while one of the guys from AA will sneak up to me and go, how did you do that? <laughs> I use my powers for good, never evil. So now she's there about six months, and my wife decides that she needs to be seeing somebody, so she starts arranging double-blind dates with our single male friends. So now what's happening is we're all going out to dinner, and by now she's drinking again. She had such a tantrum when I told her she couldn't have any wine, we gave her a bottle, and she was so well-behaved she had her own bottle every night after that. So now she's drinking again, and she's hobbling around the house on crutches, and we go out to dinner. And this is what it looks like. We're in a nice restaurant with tablecloths with you know down to the floor, and the made her D with the towel over his arm and it's all very nice and wine glasses clinking and you know a little polite conversation and during the course of this somebody has kicked off their shoe and has their bare naked foot up the pant leg of my slacks massaging my calf and my highest ambition in life is it's not him because I don't know which one's doing it and I will give you some experience strength and hope on that if you ever find yourself in that situation here's what you do you take a sip of wine you smile and you wink at everybody at that point it began to become unmanageable <laughs> Leslie started doing job interviews and she got an offer in Texas and one in California and she, we both decided Texas was a place she should go down to Houston and we managed to help her get a car and loaded her and her new cat and all of her woolly possessions which fit in the trunk she had, by the way when I met her she had a trunk with 21 shoes in it and none of them matched <laughs> Because her deal was she'd go out drinking and she'd lose one shoe and come home. And she wore like six-inch spikes. You'd think she'd notice that. <laughs> and I asked her, why would you keep them? She goes, you never know. They might show up. <laughs> so we loaded her and all of her possessions in the car and sent her off to Texas. And I set about doing what, something I'd never had the courage to do before. And I, and, I, and I dissolved that marriage. We separated and later divorced. And Leslie kept calling me on the phone. And she was down there. Anybody want to know how long she was in Houston? Six months. We do have some people paying attention. She got herself in trouble down there and called me up and asked if she could come back. And I said, absolutely. And I grabbed my foster brother. One of the many people who came to our home to stay the night wound up staying several years. And when they left, we were related by blood. I don't know how that works, but he's been my brother ever since. That's one of the features of now Alcoholic Home. And we drove straight to Houston, Texas, and packed her in a trailer and drove her straight home to live happily ever after. Yeehaw. <laughs> my wife was a barroom drinker and a blackout drinker if you, if you uh, uh, having a blackout drinker at home is the handiest thing you've ever had my friend Arbus O'Neill used to say it was handier than a pocket on your shirt because anything that goes wrong in your life you just blame it on them she's a blackout drinker she has no idea what happened last night she got to wait until I wake up and see the expression on my face to find out how it went and if I wake up pissed off she's sorry she doesn't know what for, but she's sorry. And I'm ahead on points. I've got the moral high ground every day. I've got to tell you, if she never got sober, I probably wouldn't be here because that worked for me. You got power when you got that going on. I got the checkbook. I got the social calendar. I got the moral high ground. And God help us all, I got the TV clicker. <laughs> that was the last thing I gave up in sobriety, and it went. they had to pry it out of my fingers. When you're ahead on points, you want to keep the clicker if they don't let you keep anything else. We did the dance of death for a year and a half around her active drinking, and I had no idea what I was looking at. You see, I was so surrounded with it in my home of origin because it existed in, I believe, in my grandparents and all of my aunts and uncles 
and later almost all, if not all, of my brothers and sisters from a very large family that alcoholism was there. But this was the first time I'd ever encountered it and had a name placed to it. And she told me she thought she had a problem with drinking after she had embarrassed me on a movie and had, had spilled wine on a director telling him how to direct his movie. I thought that was a bad career move for me. <laughs> it's all about me. And I grounded her, sent her to our room. And uh, she, she confided on the way home because she thought I was throwing her out that she had a problem with alcohol. And I said, the next thing I said was very interesting. We have some literature on it, you know. I said, no, you don't. You just have a couple of glasses of wine a day. Just stop. Because I didn't see her drink more than that. She drank all day long, but when I would come home, she'd suck it up until I'd see her consume some alcohol and she could relax and be what she was, which was really pretty much shit-faced drunk almost every day. When I asked her how come I never knew, she said, Oh, honey, you never saw me sober. You had nothing to compare it to. <laughs> and uh, I chased her around. I gave her the patented, uh, none of you have probably done this, when she'd come home from work at the restaurant where there was a bar and she could drink for free, I'd give her the kiss-sniff test. <laughs> And then I would do something that we Al-Anons have an annoying propensity for doing very well, and that is asking the alcoholic a question to which their disease required that they lie. <laughs> Questions like, have you been drinking? <laughs> How much have you been drinking? Where have you been? Who have you been with? Al the alcoholic's disease require that they lie to that question. But I am very gifted at asking those questions, and it was my best card to play, so I played it. And we went round and round, and I won't bore you with the stories, but it went downhill rather than uphill, and it continued to get worse, and it got to the breaking point, and I was coming home to throw her out. And she knew it was over. The jig was up. And that's, that's a sign for out? I like that one. <laughs> now I know sign language. Anyway, uh, what she did was she tried to kill herself by consuming enough alcohol not to wake up in the morning. She drank as much as she could, as fast as she could, and every time she woke up, she woke up pissed off because she was still alive for three days. She opened the yellow pages in the book. She jumped over any listing of Alcoholics Anonymous. She was sure that wouldn't work. She'd had some fleeting occasion with them through family, and she found a place that would take her in on an outpatient schedule because she was busy. She was very busy. She needed work. When I got home, she was about a week sober and uh, still shaking it out. And she came to me. And she said this to me, and she'll tell you when she speaks at AA that, that when she told me at one point during that year and a half, the last six months when I was trying to help her with her drinking, she said, I don't think I can do this by myself. I think I need help. To which the arrogant Al-Anon replies, you don't need any help. I'll help you. <laughs> and, uh, and apparently I said to her, and I really don't remember it, but I don't doubt that it's true. She said if, that if, uh, I told her that if she went and got help, that she was out. We weren't married. I told her if she went and got help for herself, she'd have to leave. So she, when she took that action and went and checked herself in to get some help, she believed that she did it at risk of her living arrangement and her relationship. And when I came home, I remember her, I asked her for a glass of wine. And I would have a glass of wine. It would look a lot like those with a longer stem and a little smaller bulb on it. And she would fill it halfway, and I would drink some of that and leave some. That's what alcohol abuse looks when you're around AA. I would leave some wine. She, that still irritates her today over 25 years later. <laughs> Asked her for a glass of wine, and she was in there. I gave her one of those. Yeah, did we enable the alcoholic? I got her one of those wine opener things with the big crank. She wasn't strong enough to get the top off. You put it in, and it just wrenches the cork out. It was a permanent fixture in our kitchen. And she dropped the bottle about three times trying to plug it into that damn thing and ran out of the house crying, and I didn't even look. It had been so crazy and so unpredictable for so long that that behavior did not even catch my attention. 
She came back in and she stood right in front of me on the couch in her living room and she says, I need to tell you, that I know you said that I'd have to leave, but I had to get help. I couldn't do this by myself. And uh, I said, okay. So I saw a glimmer of hope and she's going to this place and she has her story and I'll let her tell that to you if you have the privilege of running across her. And she's in there for about three weeks and she apparently is not drinking. She looks pretty good. She's, she's Something they're doing is different than what I was doing because she's not drinking. So they invited me down there one night about three weeks in. It was wives' night. <laughs> Just me and the other wives. And we went in and sat in a meeting, and I got my first big resentment at AA because they're in this room where people, nobody in there had more than about 25 days of sobriety, and they were telling her word for word the same exact things I was saying to her, and she could hear it from them. <laughs> resentment, vain in my forehead. Then we went off in the other room, and they tried to pitch me to get some help for myself, and I wound up in an argument with the counselor over the disease concept of alcoholism. Can you imagine that? How I can't tell you how delighted he was when I announced I didn't need this and I was leaving. Because <laughs> he had some work to do with the other wives who might have been more willing than me. So she gets sober. She, a panel comes in, and an H&I panel comes in, hospitals, institutions, and a woman on the second panel gave her a card, and, and those people changed both of our lives. She began calling Pat. Pat was the meanest, scariest, sober woman in AA. She would walk in. I'm not kidding you. You guys, before this meeting, were all chatting amongst yourself. When she walked through the door, a hush would roll over the room. She was frightening. They all looked to see how Pat's doing and see how the rest of their day is going to go. And she scared the crap out of everybody but me. I loved that woman because she was mean to my wife. She was trying to get Pat to let her have permission to leave me. And Pat was saying, well, you know, we don't make any major decisions in our first year of sobriety, but somebody as sick as you... Three years. So Leslie came up with a plan. She says, you know, if she meets him, she might change her mind. So she invites Pat over for dinner. I remember a lovely dinner. I'm sure that it wasn't. And uh, her and Pat went off to the kitchen. Leslie leaned over to Pat. She says, what do you think? She goes, oh, I don't like him either. <laughs> but you made him your God. You live with him. So now her and Pat are trying to 12-step me into Al-Anon. I'm having none of that. I'm not the one with the problem, you understand. She's got the problem. Leave me alone. I was guilty of an occasional phone call to the sponsor to point out a step or two that my wife might have jumped over a little hastily. <laughs> Pat would thank me for sharing. At eight months of sobriety, we had another fight. You see, the first year of her sobriety, I'd have rather done the last ten years of her drinking. The last year of her drinking ten times. Here's a woman who has her only tool for living has now been excised from her, carved out of her by AA, and has not yet been replaced with anything that will fix that. And her fingers end here, and her nerves are there. And the minute we're in a room together, it's Saturday night at the fights. She's calling her sponsor and calling her dad looking for a place to live, and I'm calling people looking for somebody that will take her, and it's not good. And she's not drinking. And uh, the other thing is that at least when she drank, she was unconscious a lot. She didn't sleep for her first year of sobriety. She was awake all the time and felt compelled to share her new opinions in sobriety with me at all times. <laughs> room to room to room until I would flee the house because I thought I was going to put my hands on her. It was as nuts as I've ever lived in my whole life. After, uh, after about six months, she tricked me into going to AA. She said, the people at AA think that you're my imaginary friend and I think you need to be seen with me. And I don't know why... <laughs> I'm still responsible for her sobriety now that if they think she's hallucinating, she ain't going to stay sober, so I better go to AA with her so they can see that I'm real. I'm not her imaginary friend. And 
I started going to a Sunday night speaker meeting out in Simi Valley, California. Frank S. started that meeting a lot of years ago. I sat in that room listening to people in AA tell their story and began for the first time to understand a little bit about alcoholism and the disease concept of it and what it's like to be on the other side of what I perceived as always being about me. And the things I heard in that room have been incredibly important to me from that day to this. One of them is we're going every week, and there's people that are new, not newcomers. Any new, anybody here under 30 days, they stand up and introduce themselves. And then a month or two from now, those same people stand up again. Well, I have that judgment machine thing. That's still completely intact today. I just try not to use it, and I'm checking around going, loser, 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 yep, loser, another one, another, <laughs> loser, loser. And the guy got up to the podium one night, and he gave his name. I don't even remember who he was, and he introduced himself, and he said, does anybody in this room want to know who, who wants to be sober in here more than any of you? And nobody answered, and he said, then people had just put their hand up again for their 30 days again, want it more than anybody in this room, and don't you ever forget it. For the first time, just a little of the judgment came off. Those guys taught me things. I, it was terribly valuable to me. I began to get curious about Alan, so I started asking them. And one of them had a second cousin's next-door neighbor's wife who went once, but nobody had ever seen a real Al-Anon. That was one of those meetings. And so finally, I called our central office. You know, we'd been fighting. I tore up the house. I smashed our kitchen, 40 bottles of booze with a hammer after a, during a fight because she, she wanted me to get mad so she could drink. She told me that. Big mistake. And I smashed this booze in my kitchen. She hadn't had a drink in eight months and hasn't since, as far as I know. So I called our central office, and I asked them to send me a directory, and I'm going to sneak out to my first Al-Anon. I don't want her and Lizzie Borden to have the satisfaction of knowing I'm going to go. I went to three different meeting places that were listed in the directory, and there was nobody there. Nobody showed up by the meeting time. I was in the right place. There was no meeting. I started to think that you were a figment of my imagination. I got to the fourth meeting. I walked in. It looked a lot like most of the AA meetings I'd been in. I sat down. A guy got up front. He said, I'm Frank, and I'm an alcoholic. Any alcoholics here? And they all went like that except for me. It was the first time I was ever at a meeting where I didn't have to put my hand up because I had her. And I snuck out of there. I finally went to a meeting, and it was exactly my worst nightmare. It was exactly what I thought it would be. I showed up a little room, little church room, little dingy classroom. And I got to the door, and inside were eight little blue-haired ladies sitting in a circle. <laughs> it was probably as far as from here to the end of this table, but it was the green mile to me to walk to that chair. Oh, God. <laughs> I went in and took my chair. Because what I'd heard in AA, I wanted. I wanted what I heard heard there. I heard recovery. I heard laughter. You guys were having a good time. I wanted some of that. And I, I told my wife, I says, I want what you guys have got. She said, join. I says, Is anyone think there's a little problem with my lack of alcohol consumption? She says, oh, God, I'll vouch for you. <laughs> I thought that being dishonest might cost her her sobriety because I'm still in charge of that, remember? So I, I wouldn't let her do that. I sat in that room, and those ladies changed my life. Now, I need to tell you another thing, and that is that they were all probably, all at least one of them, were probably significantly younger than I am now. Percep my perception was the eight little blue-haired ladies. So Saturday morning comes, and I'm going to get another meeting. I need to get a home group. I'm going to that meeting. It's fine, but I don't really feel rooted there. And I pick a meeting that I can ride my bicycle to. I'm a long-distance cyclist. And I'm going to ride up there. It's about 18 miles up, and I can take in a meeting and do a little 30-, 40-mile loop home and get a bike ride and a meeting in. It's all good. It's a good thing, except remember now I've been watching the newcomers in AA, and that doesn't look too good to me. 
I don't want to be new. I don't even want you to know that I'm there. They asked for newcomers. I never put my hand up. I was too afraid to do that. I don't want you to notice me. I don't want you to touch me or talk to me. I just want to get the secret handshake and get the hell out. So I have a problem, you see. Now, I'm a problem solver, so I had to come up with a solution. The problem is I'm going to show up at this meeting dressed in spandex. <laughs> Road cone colored, heat shrink to fit, no secrets from the world, roadie bicycle suit to be the secret stealth newcomer guy at the meeting with 40 women. I put my considerable brain power to work on that problem, and I came up with the idea that I would get a backpack and put it on, and I'd take my street clothes up, and I'd get there way before you. By the time you got there, I'd been in the bushes and changed into my clothes. I was a vision for you when I got here. Let Make no mistake. And when you got there and the door opened, I was the first one in. And when you got there or showed up after me, I was busy. Setting up the chairs, making the coffee, putting the literature. Busy, 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 busy. Don't want to talk to you. Busy, busy, busy. Ask me how I am. I'm fine. See? Fine. That's spelled F-I-N-E. You can ask your sponsor what that stands for. <laughs> and those ladies were kind enough to just leave me alone and let me do that. Well, I had my first spiritual awakening about two months into that. I realized for the first time that that was my chair, that I'd earned it by my behavior. It had nothing to do with her. It had nothing to do with them. And not only would you not ask me to leave it, you couldn't. That it was my chair to take if I wanted. And on that day, I left my backpack home with my street clothes in. And I showed up as who I am. I'm a guy that rides long-distance bicycles. And I showed up on my bicycle in my spandex, heat shrink to fit, no secrets in the world, road cone colored bicycle suit to take my chair in the meeting. And my friend Patty, and I tell this story with her permission, she's a dear friend of mine to this day, walked up to me and she patted me on my spandex butt and she said, you keep coming back. <laughs> now things still aren't that shiny at home. And when you're the only guy at the Al-Anon meeting, two things are going to happen. First of all, they're going to treat you special. And I'm already thinking in my disease, well, that don't work out at home. I'm home again. I'd like to tell you that they're all too well to, to sleep with me during that time, but I'm afraid to ask for a show of hands because I'm assured a couple would come up now that have been around there for a while. The other thing is that if you're the only guy at the Al-Anon meeting, when they have a skit, you're going to play the alcoholic. <laughs> I did that because I didn't have any better answers. I was in the skit. They made me a door greeter because they knew I wouldn't, didn't want to touch you or talk to you. And when they come to the doors of Al-Anon, you hug them. And they made me meet everybody and hug them. I uh, got a sponsor briefly. He was, seemed to be the only other testosterone-producing organism in the vicinity, and he was pretty new, too. He sponsored me for a couple of months. He had no experience with the steps, and I needed you, and I needed help bad. And the lady came to the meeting, and she talked about changing sponsors. I'd never heard anybody do that. I'd been to AA, you know. Y'all at AA, you, you cussed out your sponsor and threw coffee at him at the first meeting, and they've been sponsoring you for 35 years. Nobody ever seemed to change. And this woman standing at the podium gave me permission to make a change because I needed to. And I asked a very kind and gentle woman if she would be my sponsor. And she said something that's become very important to me and is something I do also. She said, I would be honored to sponsor you. She did not do the, I'm sorry, men sponsor men, women sponsor women. I can't go there. If she had done that, I wouldn't be here today. And she took me on, and it was really my only choice. And that created some havoc in my home that uh, essentially forced my wife and I to set, get our hands out of each other's recovering hair, if you will. It became none of her business after that because we couldn't share information without it being a She'd say, did you call your sponsor? <laughs> Have you done your sexual inventory yet? 
and it really did us both a favor. Her recovery and her sponsor became her exclusive relationship, uh, separate from my, from me, and mine became separate. What I believe today is that we're two people on a parallel path. We're not on the same path. We don't have to be one ahead or one behind the other one. We're just heading the general direction of spiritual recovery. And, uh, and I share that journey with her, but we don't share, you know, we're not responsible for each other's recovery. At one point, her sponsor became unavailable. Her mom was really sick or she was sick. I don't remember. And my wife came to me and she said, I respect your program a lot and I can't reach my sponsor. Can I talk to you about stuff? And I said, no. I said, you got plenty of women in AA. And she was one of those that had problems with women. She really didn't do well with women. And I said, you've got a support system, but asking me to help you with your sobriety would be the same as me asking you to watch my drink while I go to the bathroom. That that's a, that's a trigger for me. I can't go there. And I stepped aside. Another thing that happened, um, I had a lot of work to do. That sponsor got me busy doing the steps. And, uh, and she said that if you come to this meeting and you're here every week and you're in that chair, guys are going to come and they're going to stay. And they're going to ask you to sponsor them, and you better get busy. And I believed her, and I did. And when a newcomer guide show up, she'd make me go talk to him. I don't know what the hell to say to him. I, the voices are still the loudest thing in my head. Is the one loud voice, the one in the back that's yelling, kill them, kill them all. They can't treat you like that. He's the guy in charge. And I'm afraid if anybody hears what's going on in my head, they're going to run. I don't want to be responsible for this guy dying, too. So I'd go over, and I'd go, uh, keep coming back. I'm Jack. Keep coming back. And i go get in my chair. I was keep coming back Jack for my first year in Al-Anon. <laughs> And then she taught me what to do and what to say when I go talk to him. And it's, and it's been remarkable. She is, I don't have time to tell the whole story, but I followed her one day, and she said, she walked up to a newcomer woman, and she said, what brings you to Al-Anon? What a staggering question to ask somebody that comes from where we come from. First of all, we're not interested in your opinion in the alcoholic home, and when you do talk, we're not listening. There was just no validity there, and there's no direct questions and answers. Everything's dancing around the main fact in the household. And the answers that you get are staggering. I had one guy walked up. There was by this time there's a lot of guys coming to the meeting, and they all look sick like me. They show up early to set up the chairs, and not a woman in sight yet. And this guy comes walking up, and he marches up to a little circle, and he says, "I'm here to find out what's the name of that stuff you grind up in their food, make some puke when they drink." <laughs> After I asked him why he was there, and I said, "I had an involuntary reflex." I said, "You mean an abuse?" <clears throat> This guy lived the Al-Anon dream, man. He turned on his heel and headed for the car. He didn't even get in the room. He got just exactly what he came for. I went and got him. I liked him right away. I put my arm around him. I said, you come sit next to me. As you know, you can hurt somebody with that stuff. And I got busy, and I got I got into service, and I started to go places. They sent me off. There was a, an intergroup commitment that came up, and my sponsor was big on me getting any job that came up. I, got, I started doing stuff in Al-Anon. I did every commitment at the meeting, and... And uh, they nominated me for intergroup rep when I put my hand up. I said, wait, I think i got a loophole here. You can't have that job until you've had a year in Al-Anon, and I only have 11 months. And the next thing out of her mouth was, motion to table for 30 days. <laughs> you know who got the job, and I started going places. And uh, I followed a line of people and have, been, uh, and have been succeeded by a line of people in several positions, including the chairman of the Los Angeles area intergroup. We had 430 meetings at that time and three permanent employees, and they, they elected me chairman in 1995. And they did that because I didn't know how to do it enough to screw it up. And when you've got about a year in and you figure it out, they get you out before you change it. It's perfect structure. Rotational <laughs> leadership is a brilliant piece. Been a lot of water under the bridge since then. I've alluded to my wife's health issues. There's been more than that. Our life today revolves around sponsorship. We sponsor a lot of people. I have no idea how many people I sponsor. It depends on how you define them. 
but there's a long list of folks that we contact when there's something going on. We have book studies at my house, and a lot of a lot of people show up for that. And my wife sponsors a lot of women in AA. It's like the phone is welded to her ear. And uh, I told her if she ever dies on me, I'm putting a phone in the box with her and on the headstone so they know where to call her because right? she's just <laughs> that's where they're going to miss her is on the phone. And, we become very attached to the people that we sponsor, and they become family, and I've had some tremendous growth at that. We had a woman that had been group home all of her life, serious emotional problems, had never been able to keep sober. She'd go to an AA meeting, and they'd piss her off, and she'd flip the table over and MF them all and storm out and call my wife and say, I ain't going back there. My wife would say, yes, you are, and you're going to apologize, and you won't do it again next time. And she finally stacked up about seven or eight years of sobriety before her mental disease finally took her on a ride she couldn't come back from, and she took her life. We bought her her first dress. We took her to a Christmas party at an AA couple's house where she was treated like a human being for the first time in her life. She was 300 pounds, and her, her uniform of the day was combat fatigues and army boots. And her attitude was, get away or I'll hurt you. And we showed her a different way of life, and she taught us unconditional love. Another woman that my wife sponsored couldn't stay sober, in and out, in and out, in and out, young. She come in, get sober a couple of weeks. She's sober, looks like she's a 16-year-old virgin again, like she's never had a drink. And we never could figure out how, you know, it's that youth thing. They can come back from it. She kept coming back from it. And she got to be 29 years old, wound up on the street with four kids. No house, no him, no car, no money. It's all gone. She calls my wife. She says, I think maybe I'm ready now for some help. Can you help me? Can you get me in somewhere? My wife hunted around and got her a bed at a place called Ashland House over in Orange County and, and I was asked to take her down there and I said I'm not going unless you send an alcoholic woman with me I, I am not equipped to do AA 12 step work and uh, she sent one of her sponsees and we picked her up and took her down there and she seemed to be recovering I carried her in unconscious we got her a bottle of vodka to get her in the car and she consumed it on the ride I carried her in through the door unconscious and laid her on the bed and I had a lot of hope that she'd get better and we farmed them kids out everywhere and my wife who's was ill then and is ill now is driving two hours each way to go down and do step work with her. She seems to be getting better and the kids had to move. And the me people at my wife's meeting, the three-year-old was with a neighbor and she said she can't stay anymore. And they, she went to the meeting and says, I need a place for this three-year-old to stay. And they said, why don't you bring her home? She goes, oh no, I can't do that. My husband said, no, we did the kid talk. And he said, no, it's out. She came home from the meeting and she told me that. And I said, you know, I think we've been in recovery long enough that there's, all, there, there's absolutely nothing we couldn't talk about. Now, that's not me talking. I am the composite of every single defective character that I've described to you. And it is all intact and working perfectly. And today it's in remission because of maintenance of my spiritual condition, because of what I'm doing right now today. And on that day, I said, I think we can talk about it. And when my wife asked me, I said, out of my mouth came, the three- and five-year-olds are very closely bonded. Why don't you bring them both? It was supposed to be for a three- or four-week stay while Mom dried up and Got, got out and got on her feet because she'd always get sober and get out and get a job she wasn't even qualified for and off she'd go again and, and, but it didn't go that way see her common law husband came and got her out of the place and took her to the bar to celebrate her new sobriety and that was about eight years ago and they've been on a tear ever since and nobody came for those kids but we had some hard decisions to make we're a couple we, we like this you know two parents no, or two adults no kids in the house you can travel with me we do a lot of conventions and travel around to sober vacations you heard about earlier today and we can do, go anywhere we want anytime we want she can come with me on locations and we're talking about adding kids we've got kids in the house now 
And uh, when they didn't, they didn't show up for visitations to do anything else, we filed for a guardianship and later for an adoption. We weren't looking to have children, but those kids had no place to go. And the turning point for me was I looked at my wife one day and I said, I don't know about you, but as far as I'm concerned, them little girls are done traveling. They're either going home to a sober mom or they're staying here because they were on their way to foster care or someplace worse if we let them go. We knew that. And we talked about it and we decided to do the adoption and it was a wild and woolly ride. We nearly lost our marriage over it. It was awful. My wife was this woman's sponsor. We went to a conference in Des Moines, Iowa, and Dick and Peggy were there, and Clancy was there, and we got this dilemma. My wife's got a moral dilemma. She sponsors this woman. We're going to go to court and, and try and take her kids away. And my wife had told her, I'll never try and take your kids. We don't know what to do. And after talking to them, basically what I remember of the conversation was Clancy and, and uh, Peggy both said, could you live with yourself if something bad happened to those children? And the answer was that we couldn't. And that was on Saturday in Des Moines, Iowa. By Monday morning in Los Angeles, we had hired an attorney who stood in court and filed for a guardianship and later covered us on the divorce. And uh, it, was a, it was a rough time, the roughest time we've ever been through. In the middle of it, my wife got in too much pain. They're putting her on the stand, and everything she's ever shared as this woman's sponsor was coming back as accusations from the attorneys and the judge. And my wife for seven days is on the stand going, yes, Your Honor, I did that but I'm a sober woman alcoholic now. And they just kept at her. It was awful. And she finally came to me and she said, I give up. Give them the damn kids. I quit. And I said, I can't. She says, what do you mean you can't? I says, I can't. I, gave the, I looked those kids right in the eye and I said, we're going. The last dime, the last drop of blood, we're in this all the way and I can't stop. My wife said, if you loved me, you'd stop. And I had a big decision to make. I said, the only package I have to offer you is a man with children. You've got to decide if you're in or out. And uh, she did not do what I wanted her to do, which was immediately fall to her knees and beg me to stay. She spent six weeks on the fence working her program and talking to the women in AA and talking to her sponsor and came to me afterwards and, made, and said, okay, I'm in. Let's go. But in the middle of that, she had called me and she said, I want to talk to you. I need some of your time on Saturday. I said, okay, I know what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about who's getting the furniture and who's getting the dogs and who's, I'm getting the kids because she's out of that. And, and we're going to talk about dissolving our marriage. And I called my sponsor, who's much like me. He's not big on giving instruction, but he gave me instruction this day. I said, we're going to sit down and talk about divorce on Saturday, Willie. And Willie said, well, whatever happens, you will not bring up dissolving your marriage. And I said, okay, I'll humor the old boy. I said, it doesn't matter if I bring it up, Willie. She's going to bring it up. And my MO is if I go someplace and I know you're going to swing down on me, I'm swinging first. I ain't that big. It's how I learned how to fight. If I know you're going to hurt me, I'm hurting you first. And he said, you will not bring it up. And what my wife did was this. She walked in with her AA 12 and 12, and she sat on the couch. And he said, my sponsor gave me direction to do this before we talk. She opened 12 and 12, and she read the 12 traditions. And everywhere where it said the family, where it said Alcoholics Anonymous, she inserted the words the family. And she read all 12 of them. She closed the book and she set it on the table and she said, now let's see if we can find a spiritual solution to what is clearly a spiritual problem. I stand before you the happiest married man in America as a direct result of the application of the principles embodied in the 12 steps of Al-Anon given to us by AA. And I'm a living testament to that, that we live it in our house and it's probably the most important thing that we pass on to the people that we sponsor. Very quickly, I'll tell you what's going on today. My wife is very ill with, with skin cancer. She has uh, melanoma cancer. About 
once a month, including uh, yesterday while I was on a plane. They, had, they couldn't schedule any other way. She goes for surgery. Uh, she has 50 fresh stitches in two spots on her legs because it took big chunks out of her. And they're staying ahead of the skin cancer, but they can't stay ahead of what else she has, which is, which is an autoimmune disease that activates every time she has a surgery. And we've nearly lost her a couple of times. But if you don't hear anything else from me today, let me tell you this. She's been on chemo for 18 months. There's been a lot going on in our house. And uh, those kids are special needs. That dials the load up a lot. But listen to me when I tell you this that my wife's health and what might happen down the road and the hardships that we've been through and continue to go through are not a daily presence in our life and relationship. If you were to see us together, you would think that there was none of that going on. Because if it's not something that I can solve, I've got no business spending my time worrying about it. And we, we live life and love large. We chase each other around the house and laugh and giggle and scratch and have a great time. Even when the bad crap's going on, we're having a great time. And uh, last summer, we almost lost her. It got real bad. I mean, really bad. And we all thought she was going, and she managed to make a turnaround. I was going to take her to the hospital, and she wouldn't go. And I took her to the doctor, and he rammed her full of steroids, and he said, take her home. I said, what? He said, take her home. If she's not better by tonight, we'll admit her. I said, okay. And I'm carrying her. She can't walk or talk. I carry her home, put her to bed, and I'm working in the shop. And I see movement out of the corner of my eye, and here she comes. She's wearing her pitiful nightie. All you women have one of those, don't you? <laughs> you got one pitiful nightie. It's not the seductress one. It's the not tonight, honey, nightie. You know that one. And her bad, fuzzy slippers, and she's shuffling out to the garage, and she shovels up to me, and I turn to her. and She hasn't been able to speak for about a week, and she looks at me, and she says, Well, I guess you're not getting the insurance money after all. <laughs> Because of you, we get to laugh about the things that we used to cry about. The value of my life is a direct result of my association with Al-Anon and, and very much my association with Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm honored and privileged to be among you. Thanks for my life.